I was reading the Lord's Acts, and he said Judaism is unique among the religions of the world because Judaism is the only one where God gathered the entire people in his presence and spoke directly to them. In Christianity, you've got a group of apostles and disciples, a small group that heard from God and then went out and spoke. In, in Islam, you have a prophet. In Mormonism, you have a prophet. But the thing about Judaism that's unique is everybody in the nation was there. Men, women, small children, mixed multitude, everybody heard the word of God directly. And that's unique. And interestingly, one of the things about Judaism that is also unique is it's the only nation that has been destroyed come back and they're still speaking the same language. So what I want to talk to you about is confidence. Now, one of the things that the children of Israel had as they stood at the foot of the mountain is perfect clarity. There was no doubt in anybody's mind who was talking to them. There was no doubt in anybody's mind what his power was. There was no doubt in anybody's mind what his promises were. In other words, everything was absolutely crystal clear to everybody standing there. And that again is unique. The problem is, as you move away from the foot of the mountain, time, distance, and our own will fuzzes that up. So what we find is 40 days after standing at the foot of the mountain, they were dancing naked around a golden calf. So the fact that there was perfect clarity for this moment as they stood at the bottom of the mountain, and the fact that later on that clarity faded tells us something about ourselves. One of the problems that we have is that the Bible was written to a different people in a different culture. Most of us don't speak Hebrew. Most of us didn't grow up in this. And furthermore, most of us, all of us, are 2,500 years away from it. So the question is, how do we have confidence in what we believe? And how do we act in light of that? Because as I say, none of us personally was standing at the foot of Sinai. Now, I know as we go through the Passover, we're very much encouraged to mentally put ourselves in that place, and certainly that's very valuable. But as I say, even the people who stood at the foot of the mountain 40 days later were wondering where God is, wondering if he's among them. What are we going to do? This guy Moses is gone. So this is very normal. Now, let's talk about what confidence means. Confidence is not faith. Confidence is not belief. You can tell because they're spelled differently, right? I mean, there are three different words there. If we just needed one, we wouldn't have three different words. So let's start with belief. Belief is knowledge or acknowledgement that something exists. Belief is not the basis of faith. Satan believes in God. No question. Satan absolutely believes in God. Yet he's not faithful and he is not a follower of God. So belief is not enough. The next one is faith, and I've talked about that a lot of times before, and for those of you who haven't been here, what faith does is allows you to operate in the present toward the future. As you're moving, you're only always in the present. So everything that happens to you as you move, you are operating in faith. And the little example I use is I stand up on a chair, and I say, I have faith this chair is going to hold me up. 
And because I have faith the chair is going to hold me up, I then step up on the chair and my faith is vindicated. So faith is the mechanism that allows you to move through time. Because you are not in the future, you're only in the present. So in order to be able to move, you have to have faith that something is going to happen or something's going to work. Confidence is trust. So what's happening with confidence is you have trust that God is going to do what he says he is going to do for you. Trust and confidence are very similar. So confidence is con with fidelity or trust. Three different words, belief, faith, and confidence, and each of them is unique. Now, every age has got its struggles. For example, Abraham. God's talked to Abraham, right? Yet Abraham had real trouble believing that he was going to have a son. And Genesis 15, he says, what will you give me seeing as I am childless? Promised way back here I was going to be the father of many nations, but here I am, an old man with an old wife, and I haven't had any children. So this is a problem of faith that Abraham had. In the wilderness, we had direct evidence of who God was in his power, yet we have the Israelites saying, well, is God really among us? Well, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Where's this man Moses? What are we going to do? The giants in the land are too big for us. We're not going to go up there. These are people who have the direct presence of God in the center of the camp, and their confidence flows away from them. Another one, the messianic generation, the generation when Yeshua was alive and walked on the earth. They lacked confidence. You know, this guy... Jesus is going to mess everything up and the Romans are going to come and take our place. We've got to get rid of this guy. Despite all the scripture and all the promises and all the great messianic expectation that was alive at that time, you had this lack of confidence that this was the guy and he was going to be able to deal with the Romans. And in fact, that was not what he was planning to do the first time around, but we understand that. So every generation has got problems with confidence and faith. Just happens. So the fact that this generation that we live in has problems with confidence and faith is to be expected. There's nothing abnormal about that. And what I am going to suggest to you is every generation is given by God sufficient evidence and sufficient reason why it should believe. And the foot of the mountain, as we read today, it was direct right in your face, I am. Pretty clear and pretty direct. We also have evidence. You've got the written word. You've got the witness of people around you. You've got the power of the Holy Spirit that gets demonstrated in your life. People get healed. People get delivered. You have all of those evidences, if you will, that God is who he says he is and God will do what he says he will do. So every generation gets evidence, but the evidence given to each generation is different. We don't all get dragged back to Sinai. Every generation stood up base of the mountain and have God say, oh, I am. That happens once, but it doesn't happen to every generation. So our problem is we are going through this world, we're a real mess. And I will suggest to you every generation is a real mess. You go back again to Israel where you've got the presence of God, you've got the Shekinah in the temple, right? And they were sacrificing their children to Moloch. I mean, you look at the scripture and you say, how stupid can these people be? What you want to say is, how human are these people? Because 
it happens in every generation. And in the case of Israel, since Israel is a witness to God for the nations, God reaches down and deals with them directly. And he says, uh, sorry, the way you are now smells to me like dirty diapers, and I'm going to send you off into exile because I cannot have you here in my presence being blessed by me while you're behaving like that. That's what the prophets keep saying. As I've said before, God's idea is, all right, you're my people. Best case scenario, what I want and what you want is that you walk in my ways and I bless your socks off and everybody in the world can see, wow, look at what this God did for his people. I want some of that God. That's what we both want. But if you don't do the way I tell you to do, what's going to happen is you're still going to be my people, but they're going to see that this God says there's going to be consequences if you don't do what I told you to do, and you're going to go and you're going to live in Babylon and you're going to live in Assyria and you're going to live in all sorts of places where you don't want, and you're not going to be blessed because I can't have you being blessed and being called my people and behaving in the way that you're behaving. So the United States, God bless us, and I wish it would, was founded on biblical principles. With the things that are happening in the world this week, and I will tell you the things that happen in this world this week are just like the things that happened in this world last week and the week before, because we are human. As some preacher once said, if God doesn't work with the United States, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah, because we're in pretty bad shape. So, what are we dealing with, and what do you do about it? That's what I want to talk about. Now, there's a couple of reasons for lack of confidence. One is simply disbelief. There are lots and lots of people in the United States who, although they know the story of the gospel, just simply don't believe it. I don't believe in this God. I don't believe that any of this is real. And it certainly is not going to inform my life. They are ignorant. There are lots and lots of people, however, who are not ignorant and are simply angry and saying, I don't want to worship this God who does X, Y, or Z. I don't want to be in a church where they do X, Y, or Z. Again, the old preacher's thing is, I won't go to that church because it's full of hypocrites. And the preacher said, well, come on, and one more is okay. You're welcome. But understand that there are sort of two camps out there. There's the camp that just doesn't believe in this or believes in something else. I mean, you know, there's believe in Allah or whatever. But there's also a camp that has heard the gospel, simply doesn't believe it, and there's a camp that's heard the gospel and has rejected it even though they believe in God. Remember I said at the beginning, Satan believes in God. There is no doubt whatsoever in Satan's mind who and what God is. He just has rejected his rulership. And so you have a lot of people like that in this world. And I will suggest that a lot of our leaders are that way. example that my wife uses is you have lots of people who went to the Catholic college she went to who are champions for abortion, which is absolutely against the Catholic doctrine. Yet, they say they're Catholics. Your head should reset on that one. So those people are in rebellion as opposed to simply being ignorant. Now, this generation that we are among is virtually unprecedented in the abundance that it has. The United States produces wealth and distributes that wealth down far, far better than any other country in the history of the world. There have always been people who had running water. They had slaves to carry it to them. 
So the Roman emperors or whatever had running water, they had clean sewage, they had wonderful food. In fact, they used to have guys that would run up to the top of the mountain, grab snow, and bring the snow back to them and make ice cream. That used to be a thing. So the elites have always had hot and cold running water, ice cream, all the things that you're, I mean, they didn't have radios and transistors and iPhones, but you understand what I'm talking about. They lived very well. Here in the United States, you have people who are homeless that can live that way. I mean, they've got their cell phone, they've got a place where they can go and get a shower and a change of clothes. I mean, there's people all over the country that will take them in, give them a shower, give them clean clothes, feed them and all those kinds of things. So the amount of wealth that we have got is just astounding on a world scale, on a historical scale. It has never happened that way. Yet, what we have in the United States is probably greater spiritual disconnects than I've ever seen before. And part of that is, um, I, I have a brother-in-law, a good man, who was a farmer. And he would spend most of his time on a tractor. Being on a tractor gives you a lot of time to think. Looking at the back end of a mule as you are plowing your field gives you a lot of time to think. And you're in sync with the flow of the seasons, if you will. And you see the blessings of God, and you come to understand that, yeah, I've got to work really hard, but if God doesn't bless me, I'm not going to have a crop. So belief and trust in God were a great deal easier for people like that. What you have now is people sitting in their basement looking at high-quality porn on their cell phone. And for those people, the connection with God has been severed because they don't really depend on God. I have a friend who's got a nephew. The guy's completely dysfunctional, and his grandmother has sort of taken him in, and he sits in the basement. He's got an Internet connection. He gets fed, and he never has to go out of the basement. This is not some kid. This is a guy in his 30s. So the problem is lots of people have been severed from dependence on God in their own mind because of the abundance that's around them. They don't think that they have to thank God for the blessings that they've got. It's just that's the way stuff is. What's their greatest fear? I will suggest to you that their greatest fear is, quote, being thrown out of the synagogue, unquote. In other words, if you get a Twitter storm or something going and somebody gets targeted with that Twitter storm, they suddenly become a non-person, which is the equivalent of being thrown out of the synagogue. Even though they're sitting in the basement, their community has been destroyed and sent away from it. And that's their greatest fear, I think. They're not afraid of hunger. They're not afraid of being homeless or any of those kinds of things because all that's provided for them because of our abundance. But what they are afraid of is becoming a non-person, becoming irrelevant, becoming someone that nobody cares about. That's, I think, their greatest fear. And when I say becoming irrelevant, throw into that having no purpose because there isn't anything they have to do to survive. There isn't any work that they have to do. And a lot of the work that happens in the United States is sitting in a cubicle and filling in forms. That's as close to being purposeless as can possibly exist, as opposed to going out and having to plow the field and having to make sure that you've got your sauerkraut set up so that you're going to survive for the winter. And life that is a struggle is a meaningful life. So when you take away struggle and you take away 
anything except fear of being cast out of the synagogue, what you have is people who are purposeless, that have no confidence. Now, that's problem number one. Those people you can reach. Problem number two are the elites who are trusting in their power and their wealth. And there's a proverb. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Whoever trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Wealth is a metaphor here. It can also be power, influence, if you will. People who trust in that are riding for a fall, but in the process, you can't talk to them because they don't feel any need to deal with you. You have somebody who's wealthy, and you start going up and talking to him, and he looks at you and he says, well, how much money do you have? Well, you're not nearly as successful as I am. Why do I need to listen to you? And the point is, these are people who are in a strong fortress. They feel secure. They are not interested in talking to you because talking to you may disturb the walls of their fortress. One of the things that happens to people that just messes them up and makes other people like them really upset is when one of them becomes radically on fire for God. And when one of them becomes radically on fire for God, he suddenly discovers that all of his friends and associates just back away from him. But that's what happens if one of these people becomes radically on fire for God. He loses all of his connections and all of his power. So he isn't interested in talking to you. And in fact, he will mock you because you're A, not as successful, you're B, not as powerful, and oh, by the way, this thing you're talking about is really dangerous to me. So let's come back to confidence. One of the things that you need to understand, and it's really important and you all know it, is you are a member of the family of God. Now, one of the things that people who misquote scripture will tell you is we are all children of God. That's not scriptural. We're all made in the image of God. That is scriptural. But being made children of God is something that you have the right to do by your belief in the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is your brother. And because he is your brother and he is the Son of God, you are part of the family of God. Someone who does not acknowledge him as a brother and as Lord is not a member of the family of God. So when somebody tells you, well, we're all children of God, no, that isn't true. But you are. You are. And as a member of the family of God, you have rights, powers, and authority. Those are given to you. Those go with the deal. Those go with the package. And your evidence... Remember I said that every generation is given evidence of who God is and what he wants? Now, of course, you've got the written word. But one of the things that happens in our society is, well, that was just written by a bunch of men some number of years ago. That's just nothing. It was written by men. And the thing that will tell you that that isn't true is the Jews. Because they are evidence that the promises and the word of God is in fact true because you can look at their history and you can see everything that God promised and everything that God predicted and all of the things that God said of them, you can see that those have literally happened. You can look at it. And then, of course, Yeshua gave you the right to become part of the family of God. So the evidence you've got, of course, is you've got the written word, you've got the witness of the Jews, and you have the Holy Spirit. As I am fond of saying, God gave us his word twice, three times. Once he gave it at Sinai, which is what we read today. That's the written word. Then he gave us the living word, his son. 
But then he gave us the spirit at Shavuot. Happens the same day, hundreds of years apart. But it's the same thing. And the nice thing about the written word is it doesn't change. The problem with the written word is we do. So as you read the written word, you're reading a translation, most of you, and you are reading a translation whose language drifts. If you tried to read King Jimmy in the original, you wouldn't be able to read it because the English of that era is so foreign to the English we speak today. Those of you who are reading King James, which are supposed to be the original words of Jesus in English, right? Sorry, I'm not a King James only guy. But the point is, you are reading a translation of a translation, an updated translation. That's because our language changes. The word doesn't change, but we do. So, what God did for us is he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will send you a person who can keep you updated. And that's the Spirit. So when you drift out from under the Word, and the Word no longer means what it meant when it was originally written, but it means something completely different to us, you've got the Spirit that will then gently tug you and say, wait a minute, you can't do that, or you must do that, whichever way. So have confidence because you are a member of the family of God. And as you go out, there was a a guy that uh, was a kind of a rough guy and went off to jail. And in jail he got saved and became just on fire for God. And came back to his neighborhood and people were sort of mocking him and so forth and tell us about this in a mocking way. And he finally just looked at him and said, I don't cast my pearls before swine. So there are people who will not listen to you. And you need to figure out who those are because they're a waste of your time. But there are people who are lost and afraid and they don't know what to do. Those people will listen to you. And what you have to have is confidence. Confidence that the Word of God will do what the Word of God said that it would do. Confidence in who you are. Confidence in your position. And confidence to go out and talk to people about this God that you serve. Because there are so many people who are desperate for Him but don't know it. They just know that they're a mess and they don't quite know why. Those people you can talk to. And the only way you're going to do that is if you have confidence. Remember I said confidence is with trust. Trust in the power of God. Trust in the Word of God. Trust that He will do what He said He would do. And if you have that confidence, you can then go out into the world and you can reach these people who are lost and perishing and miserable and angry and all of the emotions that they have. But you have to have the confidence to burn through that. That's your job.